0: Like a dream. woke up too late Wasn't where I should be. hello and welcome to postcards from a rock and roll tour the podcast episode 8 if I could ask one thing it would be to click the follow button for this podcast and if you have a mind to please do leave a review it really does help with the ratings and as always please keep your comments and questions coming in As we progress through each month, it never ceases to amaze me how podcasts have really taken over from newspapers, magazines, radio stations, and pretty much any former method of getting information out to people. Unbelievably, there are still some people who don't listen to podcasts, but that number is getting fewer by the day. Whether it's straight news you want or the inside track about a certain sport or activity, in fact, any topic at all, there'll be an expert somewhere with a podcast or just someone you enjoy listening to that you can tune into for nothing. It's the Wild West, of course, and there are millions to choose from. But once you find a regular podcast like I've done with quite a few, they become like friends you meet every week or month. And there is a shared experience. This podcast is primarily about music and its effects and the music industry and Uber driving and people and experiences and memories and life. And well, that's pretty much it. But it starts with music and particularly the music of the moody blues and the music of that era, the rock and roll era of the 60s. Now, this period of the 60s, which produced everything from the Moody Blues to the Beatles to Jeff Beck, is a long time ago, and it sometimes feels like it's coming to an end, especially when we start to hear about people from that era dying. Jeff Beck, of course, is one such name that springs to mind right now, due to him passing away last month at age 78. Now, you might think that 78 is old, which probably means you're not a boomer. Whilst there's a 100% mortality rate for human beings, it doesn't mean we have to roll over and accept it. My plan is to live forever. And so far, so good. If you are a boomer, then you will have certainly experienced someone you know who was born after you and who died before you, which is a rather sobering experience. As a friend of mine said recently when we were discussing the passing of a mutual friend, we're all in sniper's alley now, Gordon. I laughed, but not because it was funny. Now, this often taboo subject, and by the way, there are no taboo subjects in this podcast, just so you know, is no reason to stop living. In fact, as we dodge the sniper's bullet each day, it's all the more reason to enjoy life, make memories and experience everything we possibly can right up to the final whistle. This philosophy is the reason I started a rock band aged 55. What could possibly go wrong? Well, whatever goes wrong, it will have been worth it. And things did go wrong early on in the band. I fell out with the person I started the band with. I was ripped off by an unscrupulous promoter for an eye-watering amount of money. My very first promoter. And then, just as we were about to open the throttle, go on tour and get all the money back, a dirty little microscopic entity caused the entire world to be locked down, sending my fledgling musical project into freefall. Now, thankfully, as regular listeners to this podcast will know, we are not a dead duck. We are merely a recovering wounded duck. And, as Patrick, our bass player, said to me recently, if you'd have sat the band down in 2018 when we all went over from the UK to the US for a showcase to start our American touring career and told us that by 2022 we would have played with the Omaha Symphony, the Philly Pops Orchestra, the Nashville Symphony, the Buffalo Philharmonic and done further gigs in Chicago, Dallas and Denver, we would have said, ''Thank you very much.'' I recently came across a book by William Siegert called The Poetry Pharmacy, which I'll talk about more in a minute. But in it, there is a poem called Failing and Flying, and it's all about going for it in life. And it sort of gives permission to not worry or care for the consequences, as long as you, your actions don't hurt anyone else, of course. The poem starts with the line, Everyone forgets that Icarus also flew. And the poem ends with the line, I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell, but just coming to the end of his triumph. This, to me, is a wonderful observation of an optimist looking for reasons to do things in life rather than tiptoeing through life so you can arrive at death safely. But I think I'm going to move away from the death theme now and onto something a little more uplifting. The poetry book I mentioned the poetry Pharmacy is a slim but amazing little book and what the author William Seagart does is prescribe a poem for any type of emotional ailment not a broken leg of course but ailments of the heart and head mostly and it really does bring home the power of art and the positive influence it has on our lives and when you think about it music from the 60s and very much from the Moody Blues catalog is poetry set to music There's also something about a melody that allows the brain to remember lyrics. If I asked you to reel off poems that you know from heart, you you might on average maybe manage one or two. But if I asked you to sing the lyrics from songs, we'd likely be here all day. When I was touring with the Moody Blues, my tour buddy was the drummer and poet Graham Edge. Graham wrote lots of the lyrics for the band and of course penned the wonderful Late Lament, the poem that's known from the Moody Blues' most well-known song, Nights in White Satin. Considering that he wrote it in one sitting in a moving vehicle on the back of a cigarette packet on his way to the studio where it was immortalised on that recording is mind-blowing. It's the poem that ends the album Days of Future Past and whether Graham was channelling some higher intelligence or not, the poem is a series of philosophical contradictions that personify life. He talks about lovers wrestling as one, and mentions a lonely man without love in the same line. In another line, he talks about a breastfeeding mother and an old-age pensioner wishing they were young, also in the same line. He also talks about the cold-hearted orb, which, of course, is the moon and how it changes the colours of the things we look at. And he ends with the observation that none of these things mean anything on their own. All the observations mean only what we decide by comparison. Quite deep for a young drummer in a 1960s rock band, if you ask me. The Late Lament poem goes like this. Breathe deep, the gathering gloom. Watch lights fade from every room. Betsy to people, look back and lament another day's useless energy spent. Impassioned lovers wrestle as one, lonely man cries for love and has none. New mother picks up and suckles her son, senior citizens wish they were young. Cold-hearted orb that rules the night, removes the colours from our sight, red is grey and yellow-white, but we decide which is right, and which is an illusion. And that, my friends, is one of the many he penned during his very long career. One of the things Graham used to say was that it was important to make as many memories as possible in life. And I have quite a few that include Graham from when I was touring with him. And I'm going to recall one in particular in the early 90s. The Moody's had a very good relationship with Caesar's Palace Casinos and also the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas. For quite a few years, we would perform at Caesars Palace in Atlantic City on a Thursday, Friday, and then two shows on a Saturday, and then a show on the Sunday. Then make our way to Lake Tahoe and do exactly the same the following week, and then on to Vegas and do exactly the same thing for the following two weeks. We did this every spring and autumn, or fall as the Americans say, for quite a number of years. In one of the early visits, when we got to Tahoe, as we were the headlining artist for the casino, they made all their facilities available to us for nothing. We would go skiing at Heavenly and sailing on the lake, which is, by the way, the second largest alpine lake in the world. Now, Graham was a sailor. He owned his own yacht for a while in true rock and roll style and even sailed across the Atlantic in it. So when we got to Tahoe on, I think, probably only my second visit, Graham offered to take me sailing on the casino's 36-foot yacht on Lake Tahoe. Uh, This arrangement was made at about 2am in the bar after the show. And we chatted with the concierge at the front desk as we were settling the bill. And they said they would make the casino limousine available. And as long as we left at 7am in the morning, we could get to the boat by 8am and have it all morning for nothing before it was rented out. Brilliant. It was like being a rock star. I went to bed, set my alarm, and was downstairs at six forty five AM, ready for a day on the water. However, Graham didn't make it. So I called his room, and he'd only just got to bed and said we'd have to do it another day. When I chatted to the limo driver and told him my skipper couldn't make it, the limo driver said, Well, I can take you on your own if you want there was no way I was going to miss this opportunity. So I got in the back of the casino stretch limousine and we set off for the lake. About an hour later, I climbed out of this ridiculously long car with blacked-out windows into glorious sunlight. The only thing was I'd packed my suitcase with drummer in rock band in mind. So I was wearing the full 1990s disguise, leather jacket, ripped jeans, cowboy boots, added to which I had very long hair and enough metal hanging from my ears. I wouldn't get three feet in one of today's airports without setting off an alarm somewhere. I was a walking, talking, living, breathing Real-life rock-and-roll cliché. And And when I see the pictures from that time, I have to close my eyes and squint just to make it palatable. Nevertheless, there I was standing in front of a 36-foot yacht with the owner saying, It's all yours until 1pm. The only thing was, I didn't know my port from my elbow, and I think the gormless look on my face was a dead giveaway. There was a pregnant pause where I was trying to find the words to back out. Then the guy said, Or you could take the speedboat out if you prefer. Right next to the yacht was a proper, honest to God, James Bond speedboat. I couldn't believe my luck. Not long before this, I was playing in an East End pub in London for 40 quid a night and wondering how much longer I had to endure financial hardship before my boat came in. Well, here it was. Of course, the entire day was an illusion from reality and my... In my imposter syndrome made me feel like a gate crash to fancy dress party. But I climbed in the boat and after some very simple instructions, which included, for God's sake, do not flip the boat, I was gingerly pulling away from the dock with a large orange life jacket on over my leather jacket. When I got out into the open water with nothing but a flat and huge empty lake ahead of me, I slowly pushed the throttle forward to maximum and had the thrill of my life, standing up, face into the wind and nothing to stop me. I have to tell you, it was one of the most exhilarating moments I've ever had. After about 10 minutes, I pulled back on the throttle and came to a standstill in the middle of the lake, not knowing if I was now in Nevada or California. You see, the state line goes right down the middle of Lake Tahoe. As I came to a bobbing halt, it dawned on me that I needed to take a pee. I hadn't thought about that. So I gingerly stood at the back and tried to balance myself and pee over the edge in the rocking stationary boat. I'm sure James Bond didn't have to do this. It was about as inelegant as you could visualise it to be. But I ask you not to do that. Do not visualise me peeing off the side of a boat in Lake Tahoe. Let's move on. It was a fantastic day and I got back to the casino like an exhausted kid who'd spent a day at the fair. After Tahoe... We moved on to Vegas, where the whole band was invited to the opening of a nightclub at the Paris Hotel, which, of course, I accepted. Being the youngest member of the band at the time meant that I was stupid. I was young enough to want to take advantage of all of these experiences. So, after our show finished, I made my way down to the nightclub and found myself drinking free vodka with the crew, who had also accepted the offer. And when the time came to go for a pee on this occasion... I thought it was going to be easier than the boat. I followed the signs down a darkly lit, velvet-draped hallway with a white shagpile carpet. Quite surreal. I walked into a palatial marble bathroom and there was a guy standing there in a full tuxedo. However, he was the toilet assistant. Or at least that's what he told me. This is Vegas, of course, and he could have been anyone, I suppose. But I took him at his word and I went about my business. When I turned to wash my hands, he already had the tap running and was holding a bottle of very nice hand soap, which he squirted into my hands. As I washed, he held a towel for me. And when I'd finished, he handed me the towel and turned the tap off for me. Then he opened the door. I tell you, only in Vegas. Now, at this point, we're going to press the pause button on that story. And I'm going to tell you a joke about a toilet assistant because it's just come to me and it's my podcast. And I can do what I want. So stay with me. We'll pick up with the story after the punchline. So here's the joke. A successful businessman is invited back to his high school to give a talk about his career to inspire the kids. He drives from the city back to the suburbs and parks up near his old school. It's quite emotional. He had not been back there in over 20 years. As he parked up, he noticed the public toilet he used to nip into on his way back from school. So he decided to go in just for old time's sake. As he walked down the steps, Joe, the old toilet assistant, was still there from twenty years ago. Joe, he said, you're still here. Goodness me, it's me. I used to go to the school and pop in here on the way home twenty years ago. Amazing that you're still here. Not knowing where to take this line of conversation, he added, how's the toilet business? Oh, it's not like it used to be, said Joe. We have all these drug addicts coming in here, locking the door and shooting up, and then there's all these other guys sneaking in two at a time, doing whatever they do. Oh dear, said John. I tell you, said Joe, when someone comes in here for a dump, it's like a breath of fresh air. I've just realised, this very second actually, that when you tell a joke in a podcast, you don't know if it's worked or not. Fingers crossed, eh? After that humorous intermission, we go back to the toilet in Vegas and the tuxedo-dressed toilet assistant at the Paris Hotel opening the door for me. If you remember, I was about to walk back to the bar and feeling rather special, I have to tell you. However, what I hadn't noticed on the way to the bathroom was that in the dark-lit, velvet-draped corridor, there were a set of glass doors which were open on the way to the bathroom but were closed on the way back. There's a special pain reserved for when you walk into a glass door. First comes the shock, then the bewilderment, then the pain, all in very quick millisecond precision. I marched headlong into what thankfully appeared to be bulletproof glass. I say thankfully because it didn't break. It felt like I would imagine an invisible brick wall would feel. The blood didn't come straight away, and it wasn't from my nose. It appeared to be from my forehead. And the only reason I knew was the nose was the first thing I checked but the white shag pile carpet on the floor had what looked like the contents of a large glass of red wine splattered all over it. I stumbled back to the bathroom to my friend in the tuxedo. He was still there and was indeed very helpful, but rather emotionless. He gave me a big paper towel, and this time I walked back to where the crew was. This is when I knew I was in trouble. Alan Terry, my drum tech, was the first to react when I pulled the paper towel away. His expression reminded me of when someone first sees that girl's head swivel round on the exorcist. Jesus H Christ, Gordon! I don't know what the H stands for, but it felt appropriate. You've got to get to ER now! So, I trundled off to the concierge and told them what had happened. They, knowing I was in the band, arranged a stretched limousine, the second of the tour, to take me to the hospital. At this point, I had quite a bit of vodka inside me and didn't have any pain when the doctor fixed the wound. And a few days later, I arrived home with a speedboat anecdote and six stitches in my forehead. If ever I forget what I used to do for a living, I just need to look in the mirror. Of course... I look in the mirror a lot these days. It's not just the rearview mirror of life that's always there, but the rear-view mirror in my car when I'm driving for Uber. And this last month has offered encounters with a long line of absolutely fascinating people. I met the famous Russian violinist George Maxman, who was the concertmaster for the Symphony in Nova Scotia, also the Shanghai Symphony for nine years. He now lives in New York, and I took him to the airport last week. We had a fascinating concertmaster, conversation about what constitutes talent. A wonderful way, I tell you, to spend a Wednesday morning between 6am and 7am. I also met a Secret Service agent, an attaché to the US Secret Service, no less. I could tell you his name, but then I'd have to kill you. And I also met a great guy called Paul Gifford from New York, another trip to the airport. And when I asked him what he did, he said he was a drummer and singer. So you can imagine the conversation we had. We're still in touch, and I will no doubt meet him again when Go Now plays in New York. And one of the most invigorating conversations I had was with a young Chinese girl. I say girl, she was in her 20s, and she lived in Boston in America. Yes, it was another trip to the airport at 7am. She'd come over to London to see her brother, who was studying over here, and she was a Hamilton fanatic. She couldn't afford the tickets in New York, because apparently there's something like $800 a pop. So she saw Hamilton in London eight times in the three weeks she was here. When I told her, I played in Hamilton, I thought she was going to have a heart attack. When I was learning the show, I was sent a video of the conductor of Hamilton from the orchestra pit, taken from the orchestra pit, with the percussionist's mix as the audio. It's in my Dropbox. So I pulled it up on my phone whilst we stopped at some traffic lights and showed it to her. I pumped the volume up and we both sang aloud for about 20 minutes at the top of our lungs. So much fun. Weird, but a lot of fun. These random encounters I have with people are often lubricated by music. In fact, I would suggest all our lives are lubricated by music. And not only is music a lubricant, but it's an antidote to life as well. Regardless of whether it be music from centuries ago or decades ago or just a few minutes ago, live music especially can turn an ordinary moment into an extraordinary one. It's why we mourn the passing of great musicians like Jeff Beck. One of the reasons I particularly enjoy playing the music of the Moody Blues in my Go Now band and always have done is because their music is not like a lot of recent productions with all the air squeezed out with often lots of layers. When you listen to it, it sounds like it can't breathe. The music of the Moody Blues and other bands from that era is not about machines or a click track. It's got soul and space and breadth, which is one of the reasons this music fits with orchestras. Now, the Moody Blues are, of course, no longer playing as a band. However, Justin Hayward still tours with his acoustic show and John Lodge tours with his 10,000 Light Years band. And, of course, my Go Now band is loving recreating this music live as well. There's no competition in art, and I love the fact that we're all still out there performing. The thing about playing music live is even though the music is considered old, it's not when we play it. It's brand new in that very moment. The moment before I count the band in, it hasn't been played yet. The moment we play it, another memory is being created. A brand new memory that's linked to the past, but very much in the moment. Audible.com have an original series called Inside Your Mind, narrated by Stephen Fry. It explains exactly what a memory is. It used to be thought that they were like old books that you'd take off the shelf and look at. Not true, apparently. Every memory we recall, like me peeing off the back of a speedboat in Lake Tahoe, for instance, is a brand new memory. Your brain stores the elements of the memory in different parts of your brain. The color in one region, the sound in another, the emotion in a third, and so on. When we recall them, we have to bring them all together in that very moment, to recreate what is in that moment a brand new memory, which means that they can change over time. Emotion appears to be the biggest assistant to recalling a memory. It makes them more powerful. This is why memories that involve music are so vivid. We can all remember that fantastic concert we saw in 1992, for instance, because of the way the music made us feel. We might struggle to remember where we parked the car, But those first few chords hitting our ears will stay with us forever. And scratch the surface of a doctor or a financier and you will find someone who wants to be a musician. It's the most expressive artistic medium. People from bricklayers to bouncers to bankers live to go to a show. What else can draw that many people? Go Now are coming to America in March for a short tour and we're playing at the Egyptian Theatre in DeKalb, Illinois on Thursday the 2nd of March, the Midland Theatre in Newark, Ohio on Friday the 3rd of March, the Fort Wayne Symphony on the 4th of March and the Marcus Performing Arts Centre on Sunday the 5th of March. In the symphony show, I'll be reciting Graham's poem Late Lament with a full orchestra behind me. It's a spine-tingling moment for this part-time Uber driver, I can tell you. And it makes me think of another poem by Graham called 22,000 Days. Graham worked out that that was pretty much the amount of time we have on the planet. And it goes something like this. Even though I know it's only me and my dreams that drive me, let me go on to tomorrow, one day at a time. Now I know the only foe is time. 22,000 days, it's not a lot. It's all you've got, 22,000 days. 22,000 nights, it's all you know. So start the show, and this time, feel the flow and get it right. It's important to fill every second with something worthwhile, I believe. So... Put on some great music, sing out loud, dance around the house, do whatever makes you feel good and make another memory. And if you're anywhere near one of our Go Now shows, please come along and make some new memories with us. And with that, I have to leave you. Until next time. Dear Diary, what a day it's been. Dear Diary, it's been just like a dream. Woke up to-